I think there were only two other PhDs in Australia looking at crime fiction when I started. I was always convinced I had a great question. I was not always convinced I was the best person to answer that question. And Seki, you also were very willing to take a risk. I had pictured myself when I was doing the PhD that maybe I would have a book published one day, you know, every student's dream. I never once imagined that I would be talking to you on a podcast about crime. People want the answers. Whether it's fact or fiction, we want to know who done it. A research degree can be a bit like a murder mystery. I mean, it starts with a body of existing academic work to build on. There's twists and turns down what seem to be dark alleys. And on a bad day, even a good sleuth feels like they might not make it out alive. Ultimately, though, our hero just wants answers. And it is relentless research that finds them. I'm Mary Bolling, and this is Impact, CQ University's research podcast. And this series, we're starting at the start with CQ University research higher degrees that ask the first key questions, start big careers, and put the pieces together for some of the world's most perplexing crimes. Oh, I mean problems. So across the next episodes... I'll be cross-examining some of CQU's intriguing research alumni, hearing how they use their research degrees to achieve big impact. They're just a few of more than 1,000 successful research higher degree graduates at CQ University. And today, we're hearing how one public servant turned her love of crime fiction into research, and how that research inspired her true crime account of a very different public servant, who was New South Wales' longest-serving hangman. This episode of Impact is recorded and produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. CQ University pays respects to elders past and present and recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander traditions of research and storytelling. Hello, I'm Rachel Franks and I'm coming to you from Gadigal land, which is the place now known as Sydney and it's the place where I live, work and write. I'm currently the coordinator of scholarship at the State Library of New South Wales. So I look after the library's research fellows who are diving in and exploring our unique collections. It's a great job. Oh, it sounds amazing and one very close to the heart of this podcast and perhaps all your research to date as well, Rachel. Can you tell us a bit about how you first came to research and what attracted you to it? Well, I've been in the public sector for much longer than I've been at the library, so possibly longer than I'm prepared to admit. But back in 2004, I was looking for something else to do, something to keep my brain stimulated and to build on skills that I was starting to get at uni. So I was just finishing off 
a Bachelor of Arts, a very traditional one. I did sociology and history and a bit of political science. And the history was a great love of mine. And I wanted to take that further. But how could I build on that? I came across the Master of Letters that was offered at Central Queensland. And for me, that was a really good fit. There was a really good combination of electives. So for someone, it sounds strange for someone who does really long-term projects, but it was a great combination that I didn't have to commit. You know, I could do a couple of things in history and a couple of things in creative writing, and I could mesh that stuff together and come out with something that was quite tangible. And it was a distance option, which for me doing ridiculous hours, it actually was much better for my own timetable to be able to do that and give up weekends rather than give up weeknights and, and actually go to classes on campus. It sounds like it was ticking all the boxes. You were very excited at the outset. But as this uh, fitting it in on weekends and making it fit <laughs> around the edges actually started rolling out, what did life look like then and, and, and where did the research come into it as well? It was probably quite chaotic and I have been told that there's no such thing as part-time study, it's only spare time study. And I think there's a real element of truth in that. But the way I always looked at it was, for me, it was a job. You know, I had outcomes, I had somebody that I theoretically reported to, you know, I had to hand stuff in on time, all of that sort of stuff. But it was a job very much of my own choosing. So that for me was a great motivator. And also, it's a job that has an end date so to speak. You know, you're not sort of committed to this thing until you're 65 or 67, however long it is that they want us to work for now. And the idea that you could actually achieve quite a bit in a couple of hard years, for me, that was a reward that was worth the effort. Well, Rachel, you've talked about, you know, having that end date in sight and getting the thing done, but you finished your master's and graduated in 2005 and two years later, back starting your PhD. So (laughs) you just wanted another deadline? What what was the thinking? There was a whole mix of things going on. I thought that I could do more and the PhD is the ultimate academic experience, I guess. And I... I had a good supervisor when I did the master's and I was really fortunate and I sort of contacted him and I said, what do you think about this as an idea and taking this idea of crime fiction further? And he was so enthusiastic that I possibly didn't look at all the pros and cons (laughs) before I said, okay, I will start the application. And I was really quite grateful for that enthusiasm. If I'd thought about it longer, I might have been a bit shyer about it or a bit more apprehensive or just put it off. And I know so many people that have put off the PhD. And because it's such a long-term commitment, 
it's easy to say, oh, no, I don't want to do that now. But if you're looking at four, six or eight years, some people need a little bit longer if, you know, life interrupts you. Um, you know, the sooner you actually start it, I think the better off and the more confident you can be with it. And I stayed with CQU for the supervisor, but also I did crime fiction. I'd done it for the master's dissertation and I wanted to do crime fiction again. So I did it by novel and exegesis. So I wrote an historical crime novel and then I had a theory section which explored the ethics of murder in Australian crime fiction. So I was always convinced I had a great question. I was not always convinced I was the best person to answer that question. You know, I can't lie and say, oh, I was very organised and it all went smoothly because <laughs> it didn't. Right. And there were certainly moments when I thought, really, what are you doing? You know, why have you, <laughs> why oh. did you think this was a good idea? Um, but I was quite lucky and CQU also were very willing to take a risk. So back in the day, crime fiction, I think there were only two other PhDs in Australia looking at crime fiction when I started. Wow. And now most of the universities are quite happy to do that and embrace crime as a genre. I think it had a little bit of... Um, there's a bit of cultural cringe. There's a little bit of snobbery around it. And people were unsure. I mean, a lot of people were unpacking at that time what is a degree in creative writing to begin with. So if you were going to do it, you needed to do something that would be taken quite seriously. And crime fiction hasn't always been taken seriously by the academy. And even now some people think, hmm, crime fiction. That would have been fun. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> some bits were, but you have this added challenge of how do you take something that is popular culture and reconfigure that in a way that retains that pop culture thing that makes it fabulous, but also makes it palatable to you know, more serious academics and not necessarily at the university that you're researching at, but when you go out into the world and you're doing all the conferences and the papers and you're trying to do all that other stuff that PhD students are supposed to be doing. You said you weren't sure you were the right person to do this, but it definitely sounds to me like you were bringing the right passion to this. Like what, oh, yeah. what experiences had you had or... You know, was it just as a reader of crime fiction that you dive deep into this or did you know there was more to be discovered? I was attracted by the idea of how crime fiction is all about the puzzle, but as a genre, it too is a puzzle. It's something to work out why has it been so popular for so long. I mean, I've read crime fiction since I was a teenager. Some of the earliest novels I read were that canonical stuff, you know, Raymond Chandler and DeShiel Hammett and, you know, tearing through Agatha Christie's. Mm -hmm. But also looking at how the genre has changed. And so part of what I was doing when I was doing an historical novel for the PhD was trying to tell the history 
of crime fiction in Australia. And so I played around with this idea of the women who are the central characters for this novel. It's all set in 1932. So there's a real, they start out like the women of colonial crime fiction and they're hesitant and they're not really sure and they bumble around and they do quite ridiculous things because that's what colonial women did Uh according to colonial crime fiction. But by the end of the novel, they've showcased that idea of the hard-boiled genre. You know, they're carrying guns and they're doing stakeouts and they're really bolshy, right? They're sort of quite forceful. And so for me, looking at that and being fascinated by how crime fiction, the concept is really stable, you know, crime committed, how are we going to solve this? some sort of resolution at the end. You know, it's that classic three-part story of beginning, middle and end. But how adaptable it is and how flexible it is that it just constantly reinvents itself to appeal to each new generation. It's no longer just the short story and the novel. People want audiobooks. They want podcasts. They want all these other ways to consume these stories and I just I think that's fascinating it's definitely feels like you know true crime and crime fiction seems to be having that moment like you say everyone wants it on every platform whether it's streaming or podcasts or you know having their pins up on their walls trying to solve the murder themselves (laughs) But it's just, it's all consuming. So what did you learn back when you were doing this PhD that's actually kind of relevant to our crime-obsessed community now? Well, I think just being open to how things shift and swivel around. I mean, I had pictured myself when I was doing the PhD that maybe I would have a book published one day, you know, every student's dream. Mm -hmm. I never once imagined that I would be talking to you on a podcast about crime. You know, like the crime podcast is just this thing that people started and it's just exploded. But I think certainly for me as a consumer of these stories, I feel um, not judging the stories that are told or the way that they're told, but I've certainly developed my own preference for the stories. So I prefer things that have been well-researched. And with crime fiction, I don't think it matters as much, but if you're reading an historical novel and they make a clangor of an error, it can really disrupt Ooh. your enjoyment. And I yeah. think that's that's a common problem. But certainly for true crime narratives, I prefer things that have been well thought through and really researched and not rushed. And I know there's so much pressure on journalists especially to tell these stories and tell them really quickly because the demand is there. People want the answers to this stuff. Whether it's fact or fiction, we want to know who done it, right? So sometimes we can get misinformation or mistakes are made. So I tend to wait a little bit. And I think 
even with the historical stuff from the PhD, that has stayed with me. So even as a consumer of true crime, I tend to stick with historical crimes and the colonial era, you know, for Australian stories especially. Rachel, you said, you know, you're thinking maybe one day about that book (laughs) as you did the PhD, but you got your floppy hat in 2011 and now a decade later you're actually an award-winning writer and your new release book is An Uncommon Hangman, which explores the New South Wales crime history through the story of Nosy Bob. Now, tell us about that work and did the interest start way back when with the PhD? It did in as much as I knew I wanted to tell crime stories and I wanted to play around with this idea of finding out who done it and how you can bring readers or consumers around on that journey and it's not I sort of started to get frustrated with the that golden age trope of you've got all the clues but then you don't really it's not fair you know only Hercule Poirot (laughs) really has all the information and he sort of spits it all out in the library on the last couple of pages and you go oh yeah okay that makes sense so I started doing more true crime which came as a bit of a surprise to me but from the PhD at CQU there was this really interesting idea about um, how crime writers were taking their ideas from real life. And I kind of suspected that happened, but it became more obvious while I was researching. But true crime writers were also stealing the tools of the crime fiction writer, not in as far as making stuff up, although I think a few of them do, but that idea of how you plot and structure and tell a story. And so that became really important to me doing true crime. So it wasn't just enough to say this murder took place on this date and it was eventually discovered it was committed by this person. The cultural context, you know, the environment, what was happening, why do people commit these crimes, um, how are they solved, all that sort of stuff became um, more important to me. So I actually stumbled onto this man called Nosy Bob around 2014. So I was doing true crime and late colonial Sydney and he keeps coming up. He is the executioner. He is the guy that is sending people off on scaffolds. And a lot of newspaper coverage of him is, let's say it's unkind He's a terrible executioner. He keeps bungling and all this sort of stuff. Now, I'm thinking, really, I'm a public servant. Like if I was on the front page of the Telegraph or the Herald or whatever it was, I mean, you're not quite front page news in colonial Australia, but it's like if you are regularly the fodder for the press and not in a good way, you would be in trouble. So I'm thinking if that was me, I'd have a stern talking to. I would probably no longer be a public servant. So I got quite curious about him and how he was able to keep his job. And I stumbled across this fascinating story of a hangman 
who actually was not nearly as bad as anybody said. He just had the misfortune of being the hangman while the abolition movement was really starting to pick up momentum. So people fighting against the death penalty. And here you have one guy who's called Nosy Bob because he has lost his nose. So he's easy to cast as this monster, right, carrying out this terrible duty of the government. And they're facing down one guy instead of the whole system. So in a moment that most people would consider complete madness, (laughs) I started a second PhD that looked Ah. specifically at true crime and why we read it and the history of how true crime has emerged in Australia from the first newspaper in 1803 right through to this multi-format way of engaging with true crime stories that we have now. So throughout that, I finished that in 2020, but throughout that I kept bumping in to Nosy. It's like, hi, mate, hello again. And I'd do a little bit more and there'd be stuff that people would say about him and i think, I don't know if that's true. And so I'd dig into that and find out that it was just another myth about this hangman who'd been manipulated by the press for for other purposes. And it was kind of hard to be angry at the journos, right? Because, yes, they're picking on this one guy. He is the executioner. It's not a great job. But it's for quite a noble reason. They want to obliterate capital punishment, which, you know, I agree with their cause, but the ethics of how they did that did that became super fascinating for me. And then I stumbled across an obituary of dear old Robert Howard, and it's got this great line in there about how Nosy Bob, who died at home at Bondi the other day, the story of his life and times would make an interesting book. I'm saying, absolutely. (laughs) So I went to find the book, right, but nobody had done it. Am I really ready for another huge project? But I thought it is such a gift as an historian to have this really bonkers story just land in your lap and nobody has really done it yet. Like that just, that doesn't happen to people very often. So I thought, okay, I will take it on and see how far I can get with it. But all that, that discipline that I built up during the PhDs, I just switched into that mode of operation again. I'd done quite a lot of the research by the time I actually tried to, to pitch it and say, hey, would you like this? completely amazing man um a biography of him on your list and i was very lucky and they said yes i'm so glad they said yes congratulations it's amazing (laughs) just to hear you talk about him um so you've got two formal phds behind you and the book that was practically a phd it felt like one at times it sure did you don't make it sound like a slog you make it sound like you were myth-busting and you were being spoken to from the gods through obituaries <laughs> in old papers and it just it sounds like you found so much joy in that process. What 
advice do you give other researchers to tap into the enthusiasm that that you've got, Rachel? You have to love your question. And I was really lucky. So for the first PhD, I wasn't quite sure. I was sort of close to the question, but I hadn't quite nailed it when I did the application. But I was allowed to change that along the way. And I think that even though that's quite scary, I think that's very normal to be able to change the question and refine it a little bit. I was probably luckier than I deserved to be. So with the biography, I know so many biographers and they start out with a little bit of a crush on their subject and then the more they learn about them, the less they like them and the harder it becomes. Not everybody, but I've certainly heard some stories where the first few years were a breeze and then the last couple were just traumatic. (laughs) Um, But I had the complete reverse because I had no expectations around a hangman. I thought, I'm going to find a bit of a thug. But the cultural story around him and his life is what's really fascinating. And the stories of all the people that he's interacting with, those little micro histories, those miniature biographies of people coming onto the scaffold and you know, around that justice system that we had that was so brutal. But the more I learned about Nosy, the more I actually liked him. He was so normal. He was actually a very generous person. He was the man that you could knock on his door at three o'clock in the morning and say, something's happened, I need a lift. And he would do that for you. Oh, hang on, I'll be out in a minute. And um, I really admired that. And, you know, I finished off the book in lockdowns and in the middle of a global plague and all the other madness that was happening. And he actually became quite a good friend, which sounds completely strange and unexpected. But he was so determined to be normal that he had a resilience about him that I grew quite attached to and I drew from because I think that whether you're doing a master's degree or a PhD or you're sitting at home and you're thinking, I too would like to write a book or a history or a thing of any kind, you need a little bit of um, get back up every now and then. Crime is, it hasn't gone anywhere, right? We've been trying to solve crime and punishment internationally for thousands and thousands of years. All that we can do is tell one story at a time and through increment give people solace or relief or try and make the system better than it was yesterday. Dr. Rachel Franks there with some amazing advice on finding resilience for research, even in unlikely places. Rachel's book is An Uncommon Hangman, The Life and Deaths of Robert Nosy Bob Howard, and you can find it at bookshops and libraries now. And you can find Rachel on Twitter. Her handle is CFWriter. The CF is for crime fiction. If you've got a book inside of you or even just a question that needs answers, 
a research higher degree is a good place to start. Visit cqu.edu.au slash rhd to explore degree options, pathways, potential supervisors, or just to register for a free information webinar. There's more information in the show notes, and that includes a link to current scholarships for RHD students. Next episode of Impact Research Podcast. How her passion for research put CQ University's first Indigenous PhD graduate into the halls of power and helped her transform opportunities for future generations. Being Indigenous at that point in time in central Queensland was not easy. People would just outright say things to your face and not and hurt your feelings and not care. So you sort of had to have this bit of armoury around you. And that resilience, I think, is definitely what helped with the PhD. I look back now and I can't believe how bold I was. But at the time, in many ways, that's the way the river took me. That episode with Professor Maria Rossidi out soon. Make sure you're following CQ University podcasts wherever you listen to get every episode as it's released. Thanks for joining us on Impact Research Podcast from CQ University where research makes real impact.